Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. We've talked many times on the podcast about meditation, including getting pretty detailed in some episodes about these fairly esoteric states that people might experience through meditation, and exploring some pretty deep conversations about what is the self, or is there a self at all? We've extolled its many virtues over and over again, and certainly one of the major speakers on this podcast has a significant meditation background. But going back through our catalog recently, I realized that we've never done a detailed what is meditation and why would someone want to do it episode. Partially, that's because there are a lot of fantastic meditation resources out there, but I think that this is a good opportunity to talk about it and maybe clear up a few misconceptions along the way. To help us do that, I'm joined by a meditator of, oh, 45 years or so, Dr. Rick Hansen. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I'm good. Uh, we're going to talk about one of my favorite subjects. Of course, not one that I was able to importune you or seduce you into as a young whippersnapper. <laughs> uh, I, I will say to my credit, I never preached meditation at you. I think that's a fair statement. Yeah, I think that's totally true. And I've definitely come to... Okay, you paused there. You freaked me out. That was a long pause. <laughs> you had to think for a moment there. Yeah, yeah, I, I did. I did have to ponder over that one for a second. I remember many wonderful days spent at Spirit Rock's youth meditation program or youth group Yeah, while uh, you would do things as part of the board over there and also as just a meditator over at that wonderful center. But I think that actually meditation is something, and of course, I, I kind of took a covert shot at myself in the intro to the podcasting that one of us on this podcast <laughs> is a dedicated meditator, <laughs> implying one of us, maybe not so much. Um, but I've really come to meditation, I would say, a lot more in my adult life than I did as a kid. Yeah, that's true. Even though you gave me certainly many opportunities to experience it as a kid. Well, if you wanted to, yeah. We could talk about your experience. You did a teen retreat one time. Mm -hmm. and. Yep. I, maybe I'll just say this. So one of the things that happened there is you can tell the story too. The, my version of it is that over this weekend, you and a bunch of teenagers went up to this Buddhist monastery in Northern California, yeah, where the monks there are known with a honorific Ajahn, yeah, Ajahn Joe, Ajahn Brahm, Ajahn Tani Saro, something like that. And they're one of your classmates or one of the people there. Young woman uh, twisted her ankle badly. Mm -hmm. She needed to go to the local. Ukiah Community Hospital, yep. completely conventional, ordinary place in a forestry-oriented city. And in comes this shaved-headed dude in robes, <laughs> the Ajahn, who is the co-abbot of the center, yeah. person with profound practice, Ajahn Pasano, I think. Mm -hmm. And you, as the companion with this girl, sitting there in the waiting room while stuff's happening. I could just imagine that. It was a completely hilarious experience. We were also joined by a novice, one of the one of the novices at the monastery, yeah. who is basically working toward or deciding if they want to become a monk in the future. Yeah. And I remember sitting with him in the waiting room of this hospital, totally normal hospital as we're camped out there in the waiting room. He's wearing his robes, of course. So anyways, wild experience. I do have a background in meditation, but like, I would say that I've come to it more practically in adulthood in terms of appreciating it. Yeah, my favorite part is when you came home, I said, so Forrest, you know, how was it? You know, so you told a little bit of the story, then you paused and as a guy who's watched a lot of sports, says that, yeah, dad, you know, those Ajans have game. 
<laughs> yes, they have some serious game. And I think that that's something that maybe we can kind of start there in terms of the benefits of meditation. Yeah. That you just see over and over again in people who have a really significant personal practice. Uh, we mm -hmm. spoke recently to Steven Snyder, who's a lay person and not a monastic, uh, but somebody who's just engaged with this practice for a very dedicated period of time. And you just see different qualities in a person. You see qualities of openness and lightness and I guess non-attachment, put it in a single word. And one of the ways to get there, the primary practice, is through practices of meditation. So anyways, that's what we're going to be talking about today. Meditation, top to bottom. We're going to see how far we get here. So all that preamble out of the way. Before we get into today's conversation on meditation, a couple of quick reminders. First, if you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe to it through the platform of your choice and maybe even leave us a rating and a positive review. Also, if you want to support the podcast another way, you can find us on Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. Then finally, I have a new YouTube channel. I'd really appreciate it if you would check it out sometime. It's youtube.com slash C slash Forrest Hansen. And if you enjoy the topics we explore on the podcast, you'll probably like it as well. Okay, so on to the content of today's episode. To start with almost kind of a trick question, what's the point of meditation? That's a great question. Minimally, it's to step out of the parade. It's to step out of the noise, the cavalcade, the ordinary drama, and just step out of it for a minute, if not more. Get a little bit of separation, step back from the ongoing, you yelling inside your own mind. Just step back from it. That itself. It's fantastic. You can kind of feel it in nature. You you cross that little line between the street and the park. Whew, you feel a little different already. And that capacity to step back in and of itself is enormously valuable. You're maybe you're carving a minute for yourself in the middle of your busy day that says, you know, I'm gonna step back out of that and just be here with me for me for this minute. That alone can make a really, really big difference. A second purpose in meditation is to learn more about your own mind. Mm -hmm. Because when you're caught up in it, you can't learn much about it. It's when you step back from it and you sort of observe it and you observe repetitive patterns of habits of different kinds, reactions of different kinds. And also when you step back and your mind gets a little quieter, you can become a lot more aware of the deeper layers. And maybe some kind of reaction arises that just you're reflecting on something that happened earlier in the day. And then in a more meditative way, you can kind of unpack that reaction and understand more the underlying, often younger, causes of that reaction. That's a point. You get to know yourself better. You come home to yourself. You wake down, not just wake up. That's great. I'll give you another couple. Yeah, great. You can get more in touch with a kind of core of being. In my view, a kind of universal core. Um, I don't mean it's exactly the same in every person. I mean that everybody has this. Everybody has a like a deeper place inside that you know feels like a, an underlying place of, of calm and clarity and authenticness, auth authenticity, who you really are way down deep. And a lot of people are alienated from their fundamental home inside themselves. They're living 
with chronic inner homelessness, in a sense. And in meditation, you can increasingly get in touch with this underlying quality of being distinct from all the doing. And as you get increasingly in touch with it, you become more anchored in it, in effect. You can take your stand there more and you can come from it more even when life is stressful. That's pretty good. Another thing, if you want, is that you can use meditation to cultivate particular qualities like compassion or a feeling of basic all rightness in the present or even a sense of contentment so that there's less basis for pressure and drivenness and craving. You can have more of a sense of gratitude and contentment already. You can cultivate these qualities inside yourself. That too is really great. And you know these can be developed really quite a ways, including all the way out to a profound equanimity and unconditional serenity in the core of your being, even as you grapple with life and deal with issues. So cultivate qualities. And then I'll just name two more. And these different purposes can mingle together. And also it can give you a sense of why you're doing what you're doing. So it's also possible, especially as your mind gets quieter, you can become more insightful into the nature, really, of your own consciousness, your own mental processes. And what people usually recognize in a deepening way is the ways in which thoughts come and go. They're made up of different parts. They're transient. And in a certain kind of sense, they're ownerless. The sense of self can start to relax and there's presence. You know, there's awareness of what you're experiencing, but you start recognizing that the streaming of consciousness, all the contents of consciousness are insubstantial. They're foamy, they're cloud-like, and that makes them less compelling and brick-like and weighty and burdensome. You start orienting to your own mind in a more lighthearted, less tightly attached, you said unattached, kind of way. That's deep insight. And you know that insight can get even deeper. And then the last purpose people often have for meditation, particularly if they're meditating or doing something, let's call it contemplative, if they're practicing something contemplative in a religious context or an explicitly spiritual context, not necessarily, but often with that religious context, there's a purpose in meditation that ultimately is about a kind of union, a kind of becoming, capital T, that, whatever that is. And maybe that is an inherent spaciousness in reality that allows for deterministic, conditioned, time-bound processes to proceed. Maybe that has a sort of sense of a timeless spaciousness that's transpersonal, maybe that's what one is becoming absorbed in or one with, united with, let's say, or whatever it might be. So those are multiple different purposes in practice. I think that probably covers a lot of ground. To point to something that's inherent in what you're saying, there are a lot of different reasons to meditate. Right. There are a lot of different points of meditation. And What this might indicate to you, if you're listening right now, is that if you've listened to other things that are very narrow in their definition of what is meditation or what is the point of meditation, that it's appropriate to approach that narrowness kind of skeptically, because it's just not a very accurate representation of what's going on here. 
at the most insightful, most high level approach sort of way to frame it, yeah, you could argue that the deep purpose of meditation as the Buddha practiced it was to develop insight about the nature of reality and to increasingly unfurl himself from attachment to this narrowly identified sense of self. That's absolutely something you can do through the process of meditation. But you can also just relax. You can also learn a little bit more about the way that your emotions work. You can also use it as a way into, as you were saying, a more spiritual form of practice. You don't have to, but you can. And so it's nice to have kind of a definition and approach to meditation that includes all of those different parts. And to be really clear, we're not obviously, as you know, we're not pushing a Buddhist frame here. Yeah, you know, we're totally. somewhat knowledgeable about it. And there's been a lot of intersection these days in secular ways of some of the psychological perspectives and tools found in the, the Buddhist tradition overlapping in, with modern psychology and, and modern neuropsychology and brain science. That's really true. And there are other you know, traditions as well, including secular traditions that, that have meditative qualities to them. Absolutely, yeah. But I think, again, to really emphasize your point and underline it, there's no one right meditation. Mm -hmm. And it's not like, you know, if people do X, they're really meditating. But if people are not doing X, they're not really meditating. Mm -hmm. There are many different ways to meditate. And frankly, for many people, honestly, just plop it down on the couch and chilling. If that's your form of meditation and you sort of let your mind wander and you gradually calm the body and you gradually relax and you kind of reset back into the green zone. And then you get up 10, 20 minutes later and you're less frazzled. You're less likely to yell at the kids or kick the dog. Cool. <laughs> Good on you. <ya. laughs> a plus. No worries. That sounds like your form of good meditation. You know, and the most important kind of meditation is the one you'll actually do, right? Yeah, totally. So you've kind of already addressed this, but just to give us maybe 30 seconds here, we might only need that, on a question that comes up over and over and over again. Do you have to be religious to meditate? Do you have to have a spiritual perspective to meditate? Not at all. Not at all. Yeah. And for example, just a very common meditation these days, often called mindfulness meditation, it's, it's really broader than that. And you can be mindful while doing any kind of meditation. So mindfulness is not restricted to what are routinely called mindfulness meditations, mm -hmm. while even though there's a lot of mindfulness present in those kind of meditations, people can do it right now. I'll give you a little quick meditation. Great. One of the most powerful meditations I know, it involves three breaths. You can do it over just three breaths. You can do it while you're listening right now. First breath, breathing while feeling your chest as a whole. So let's do it here. Breathing while feeling your chest as a whole. Okay. Second breath, breathing while feeling caring. Simple feeling of friendliness, lovingness, compassion. Breathing while feeling caring. Okay. Third breath, a little more challenging. Breathing while feeling cared about. Simple sense of being liked, loved, appreciated. Breathing while feeling cared about. Okay, three breaths. That's it. If you just do them, boom, 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 half a minute. What do you notice, Forrest? 
And it's a great practice. It feels good. I feel I feel a little more relaxed. Yeah. I feel a little less high tone. I try to go into these podcast episodes with a little bit of energy to hopefully keep it interesting. Yeah. Uh, but I feel a little bit more calmed in that sense. I feel a little warm and fuzzy inside. Yeah. And to your point, obviously, there was no spiritual connotation there. Correct. But it was a meditation. It was a form of meditation. It was a kind of thing that you can do. Yes. Really exactly. 100%. So great. And I just also want to underline, though, that I think it's humbling and appropriate for people who are potentially righteous secularists to really appreciate that throughout history, most of the time when people have been doing something contemplative, something meditative, they've been doing it in a spiritual context. Mm -hmm. That's okay, right? It's okay. And that said, in this podcast, certainly, we're you know, generally framing things in a very secular sense. Yeah, absolutely. So to give maybe even another layer to that, I'm a pretty darn secular guy, and you're somebody who has more of a spiritual orientation. And mm -hmm. we get along just fine when we talk about <laughs> these things. So you can have very different approaches to this material, and it really is all okay. Right. You know, like we've had plenty of not recorded on the podcast, pretty deep conversations about like our views on the nature of reality and That's things right. like that, that are quite divergent from each other often. Yeah. But that doesn't impede our ability to use these practices in helpful, positive, supportive ways. And it also doesn't impede our ability to get along with each other. And I don't think that that's just because you're my parent, although that might also have something to do with it. <laughs> so, okay, so delving into what's kind of going on in meditation, maybe a little bit more Often, if you, particularly if you're approaching this in more of a Buddhist framework, but we're holding all of this mostly secularly inside of this conversation, you'll hear about these kind of two big aspects that appear inside of most meditation practice. Often you'll hear them referred to as more insight meditation versus more of like a calming meditation. Could you just like peel these words back from each other and give us some definitions here about what's meant by all of these terms? I'll give you a, a traditional metaphor. Yeah which is you find yourself in a forest of suffering. And in the distance, you see the mountain of inner peace and the highest happiness. So you want to get from where you are in the forest to the mountain. Point number one, all you need to do is to cut a path. You don't need to clear away the entire forest of suffering. That's good news right there. <laughs> it's great. So then the question becomes, how do you clear that path? Well, you could use a razor blade, but it would take forever. It just doesn't have much power. Alternately, you could get a heavy stick and start whacking on the trees and the brush, but it wouldn't be very sharp. Or you could combine the sharpness of the razor blade and the heft of the stick into, let's say, a machete and use that to cut your path to the mountain of inner peace and the highest happiness. In that same way, insight is like the sharpness of the razor blade. It allows you to penetrate and to discern with great clarity in an increasingly granular way about your own personal experience. Granular in terms of time, you become increasingly able to track events in your own mind that happen several per second, and you become, in a more granular way, more in touch with subtleties 
of body sensations, movements, moods, inclinations, thoughts, justifications, and so forth. That's insight. The Pali term for that is vipassana, Pali being the language of early Buddhism. Second, the heft of the of the stick, that's like concentration. That's a kind of deep calm, a sense of deep collectedness of your being, deep presence of mind. And the combination of the two, the power of concentration and the precision of vipassana is what is then liberating. Mm -hmm. And you can train in both. In the Buddhist tradition, the three-step path, loosely three steps, and these steps kind of swirl together, is you begin with virtue. Mm. You begin with morality, non-harming, cleaning up your own act, being generous to others, exercising right speech. You start with virtue. That's, I think, pretty good. Kind of old school. Good place to start, yeah. Yeah, yeah, straight up. You're like, clean up your act, you know? (laughs) You want to suffer less? Quit being a jerk to others or to yourself. You know, good, good, good good place to begin, right? Clean it up. And then second, you develop steadiness of mind, concentration, sometimes called shamatha, sometimes called samadhi. Those terms overlap a bit. So you're developing concentration. You're training your mind. You're purifying your mind. You're clearing out old negative reactions. You're developing greater stability of presence of mind. And you become more and more able to tip into some pretty deep places that feel good. That's interesting. Uh, The Buddha said that happiness is the cause of concentration. Pretty good. So you're developing more contentment, more joyfulness, even a blissfulness entwined with this cultivation of concentration. So that's kind of the second major phase, loosely. Mm. And then in the Mm -hmm. third phase, there's the development of wisdom. So we begin with virtue, we cultivate mental training and concentration, and then we apply that into liberating wisdom. And that gives us sort of a loose roadmap. So you start seeing the vipassana element, the insight element coming more in as we start moving increasingly into wisdom. And a person might ask themselves, oh, where am I in that process? Hmm. And if a person is like me, and I think many people who has leapfrogged, over some intermediate stages and is really into the cool cosmic wisdom of different traditions or different podcasts, and yet hasn't really laid that foundation of virtue Mm, and mm -hmm. concentration, it's time to go back and get those building blocks laid in so that then your wisdom can really, really take off. Or the wisdom that you do have you're much more able then to build it into your real life because now you have the infrastructure for it rather than it being a kind of really cool idea or a momentary insight. And yet in everyday life, you're still kind of neurotic and a jerk. Yeah, great point. And I think that to opine for a second, you see that a lot. You see particularly, I think, in kind of more contemporary and you know, I, I refer to myself as an agnostic, but I think that this is sort of an issue that comes up sometimes in more agnostic interpretations of these sorts of practices, more kind of secular mindfulness and so on, where people want the fruit of it, but they're not particularly interested in planting the seed of the tree. Very good. Where they want to be able to enter all of these very esoteric consciousness states or have like deep insight into the nature of reality or 
go on some kind of deterministic, you know, whatever that they want to spiral off into. But they haven't actually gotten the point, which is to feel better and be better as an individual before we start spiraling off into like, but am I an individual at all, really? Yeah. You know, like one of the things that's really talked about frequently is right action, right behavior, like mm. virtuous behavior out in the world. Yeah. And so that's a kind of, if you want to think about it, that's a kind of meditation too, if you want to sort of approach it that way. To just put kind of a bow on what you were saying about the combination of these two factors, there's a wonderful quote from Ajahn Brahm, who is a Ajahn, kind of a abbot of a, of a center who's in Australia, a very well-known person. And his quote is, calm is the peaceful happiness born of meditation. Insight is the clear understanding born of the same meditation. Calm leads to insight and insight leads to calm. So these are kind of the two hands that wash each other. Beautiful, wonderful. And also a tip of the hat to Ajahn Brahm, who has played a historic role in bringing women into full ordination in yes. mm -hmm. his uh, Buddhist tradition after 2,500 years of patriarchy yeah. that has relegated them to a second-tier status. Good for Ajahn Brahm. Great point. Yeah. Thanks for raising that as well. To make this really personal and kind of serve as a bit of a transition inside of the episode, why do you meditate? Whoa. Well, it's easy to be glib about that. And I think yeah. it which would be antithetical to genuine <laughs> meditativeness. Yeah. I began to meditate in 1974 as a 22-year-old guy. And I was curious about the mind. I was scattered. I was fragmented. And I found in meditation... It was, it felt like a kind of coming home to my deeper being and a kind of gathering together of the scattered, sometimes shattered fragments of my own psyche. That's kind of where it began. And periodically, I would have, as many people have had in anything contemplative, and sometimes not doing formal contemplative practice, but for example, just sort of being out in nature, periodically I would have flashes of clarity about what was possible was possible as a way of being. Whoa, a person could truly feel entirely at peace. Wow. A person could feel rested in love even amidst others who were not being loving. Whoa. You know? Yeah, totally. Like a person could have a sense of being utterly fulfilled with a simple life. And I, I just wanted that. And it reminds me Actually, I believe of a metaphor from Gurdjieff, this kind of exotic, esoteric teacher, especially in the um, 1900s. And he referred to psychedelics, I believe, but we could apply this to anything. He said, they're like a telescope. They show you it's possible, but then you need to practice. You need to walk there on your own. And in that way, I would have these flashes of possibility mm. that, that I needed to practice so that I could inhabit those ways of being increasingly and, and they could occupy me mm. increasingly, increasingly established in me. And so that was, that kept me going. I am interested in the ultimate possibilities in this life. So I'm, I'm interested in that. I think yeah, that's totally. far from unique. A lot of people have that way. So I, I do imagine what is the highest happiness? And then we look to people in the world today, pick your person or throughout history, and we go, well, how far could I actually get? in this life, in, including in the union dimension 
of the ultimate sense of oneness with whatever the ultimate actually is, that also definitely has has drawn me over the years. I think I'm being just super honest here. Uh, there's certain trainings and steps that are stages of practice that are known in the tradition, and some of them are, are more advanced from what I've experienced so far. I think of myself as an advanced intermediate you know, meditator, <laughs> but now I'm interested yeah. in more advanced practice and learning from people like Stephen Snyder, who we had on, and other teachers. You know, what can we learn from them? I know that we're going to be interviewing Henry Shukman soon. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, learning from people like Henry. So that interests me too. You're like, yeah, why not? You know, how cool could it be? Absolutely. I mean, you basically wrote a book devoted to those topics, Neurodharma, which was... Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Like, what is this, what are the stages that people go through yeah. to get to that point where they're exploring like true non-duality or true not-self? Or what does that look like and feel like practically? Yeah. And I think for people themselves who might be listening, who are already doing a little bit of meditation, Stephen Steiner made a comment to me personally when I was sort of describing, you know, my own practice where I was at. And he said, well, Rick, um, you know, you're, you're like a lot of people, this was some months ago, who have a pretty good practice and it's stable and they're kind of plateauing with it. And it's really okay. They know what they're doing. It's good. It's not, you know, it's not bad. It's all good. And it's kind of plateauing. <laughs> yeah. And so, I, <laughs> hello. So do you want to do something with it? Yeah, yeah totally. he's, a, he's a teacher. <laughs> Like, you know, just naming where you're at and it's fine where you're at and mm-hmm. this is where you're at. So yeah. it reminds me a little bit of rock climbing that there's just this inherent process in which so much is out of reach when you're climbing. And and yet the next hold is within reach. Mm-hmm. Step up on what you can and take that next move and reach higher and then see where it is from there. The next step. Mm-hmm. makes sense to us. Yeah, Take the next step, totally. whatever that is. Often there's a knowing inside. What would be the next step of deepening or intensification or purification or relinquishment? So much of meditative practice is not about acquiring. It's about shedding. Mm. What are you relinquishing for the sake of a higher happiness over a pleasant plateauing happiness that, you, that you're used to right now? Then also I want to, this is a really important point. You do it for the sake of others. I know for a fact from the inside out that my own engagement with practice over your lifespan has helped me be less reactive, less cranky, less caught up in my stresses, more spacious, more patient, just easier going. It's helped me be a better dad and husband. That, that matters. We, we practice for the sake of others not just for ourselves. That's a very important motive to, you know, if you are someone who's meditating, to imagine that others in the world literally are being meditative right at the same time you are, if you're doing Mm. a formal practice, that's pretty cool. And you can feel that they're with you. You can feel that you're practicing for them. You can feel that you're practicing for the people immediately in your life who may have no Mm. personal practice at all, but it's going to help you be better with them, a better boss, a better parent, a better neighbor, a better friend. Mm. So that's an important element as well. I think it's totally a great point. And I also want to maybe offer a little clarification for people who might not be familiar with aspects of, of your language and kind of the way that this language is used sometime inside of different groups. And also just to give you some credit here, frankly. Rick's been practicing meditation, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, for about 45 years. And I think that that gives you some perspective on the phrase, 
I'm an advanced intermediate, you know, which is the phrase you use to describe yourself. Yeah. Where there are different ways to approach any kind of semblance of an idea of progression, which is itself kind of a problematic idea, frankly, yeah. uh, inside of the world of meditative practice. Rick teaches a Wednesday night meditation class and has for many years. Uh, Rick's been on the board of a meditation center. Like, you know, you're very, you've written two books, three books that have touched on meditation in different ways, at least three, if, and you can include some others in there if you want to. And it's an extremely, you've, you've meditated almost daily for years and years and years. 30 years. 30 yeah. years, yeah. And so I just want to frame that with the language of like, oh, I'm an advanced intermediate. It's like, well, yes, relative to what is possible or where yeah. people can go, that yeah. could very well be true. But often when people use the language of, oh, I'm intermediate, it means they've done something for like two years kind of casually. So I just wanted to frame that expression inside of like the actual scaling of what you're talking about here. Yeah, I appreciate that. So yeah, so I, I just think that it's worthwhile to kind of do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So all that said, I want to kind of move on here to a question that we get a lot, which is basically a response to like, how can I meditate if I can't do X? Yeah. So maybe related to that, what are some of the major forms that meditation can take? How can people do meditation? One form is to be meditative while doing something that you're doing. Mm -hmm. Now, it could be something like yoga. It could also be something like walking the dog or washing a dish. And the certainly the common characteristic of all meditation is mindfulness. There is a recollectedness, there is sustained present moment awareness. And to be sort of brutally blunt about it, yeah. it's a little bit like doing resistance training. You're either lifting the weight or you're not. And so, for example, you're either in the present with your own experience and maybe some particular object of meditation, like sensations of breathing or a word or a phrase like a mantra or maybe an image or an emotion like gratitude or 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 love, uh, whatever it might be, you're either in the present or whoop, lost in thought. And a lot of meditative training, especially on that second element of concentration, the development of steadiness of mind and kind of a purification or and a releasing of old neurotic habits of thought, when you're doing that a lot, you're dealing with this distinction between in the present, mindfully present, boop, lost in thought. Mindfully present, boop, lost in some inner movie of one kind or another. And increasingly, you come back faster. You have more of a background awareness of in the present, even when you're a little bit lost in thought. And you can also start to recognize increasingly when you start to get lost in thought. Mm -hmm. So there is this element, absolutely of sustained present moment awareness, yeah. and let's not kid ourselves, uh, it's real. And that's and that's the consistent through line through yeah. all of the different forms of practice that we might be talking about in this episode. Yeah, that's exactly right. And yeah. you're training, you're training your mind, which changes your brain. There's tremendous research now on the physical health benefits of meditation and also the psychological benefits, including applied to some serious mental health issues. And you could see some of the residues of mental training in terms of neurological change over time. So yeah, you're, you're really doing it. And then inside that context, it really helps to have a kind of an anchor for your attention, especially in the beginning. Something like the sensations of breathing or a word or a phrase, like I said. I think of that anchor as a little bit like a buoy in a very warm and comfortable tropical sea that I'm resting my arm on. 
and bobbing up and down comfortably, staying in touch with it as the waves of sensation of inhaling and exhaling move through awareness. And also as other waves of reaction come and go, including sometimes big waves with strange creatures inside. Whoa, that time my dad yelled at me. Whoa, Mm -hmm. that thought about going out to dinner tonight and having a couple glasses of wine. Whoa, just rolling through. (laughs) And yet you're staying in touch with the buoy. Mm -hmm. And no matter what strange creatures are inside the various waves coming by, you're not swept away by them. So establishing contact with that. And one simple way to do it is to count your breath. Mm -hmm. Stay in touch with the breath. Count to four, count down from four. If you want to go more, go to 10 or count down to 10. Don't let the count become what's primary. It's sort of a murmuring in the back of your mind so that you're staying in touch. You can also do what's called noting, where you just note like rising, falling, say softly inside your mind or in, out. You know, that just helps you stay present. You may find like I do that getting verbal in this way, especially if you have some background in meditation, it kind of gets in the way. It's, it's overly verbal. You don't need to use it. You find other ways to help yourself increasingly drop in. Disengage from the chatter. Meditation is pretty much a right brain activity, right hemisphere activity for right-handed people. It's, it's nonverbal, it's holistic, and you can become more skillful about not following the inner chatter, not allying with it or you know joining with it. It might be there, but increasingly you're getting a sense of your body as a whole, which will naturally draw you out of verbal activity. It'll naturally draw you into the right hemisphere-centered activity. You just let go. You let go of the chatter. You, you know, you disengage from that. That's a really helpful thing too. I find for a lot of people, it's it's really quite helpful to touch material that you and I explored in the book Resilient. A basic sense of feeling safe enough in the present, so you can afford to feel you know calmer, recognizing what's all right right now, more peaceful, okay, rather than fearful and angry. Also helpful to have a sense of an enoughness of satisfaction in the present so you can feel a little more contented, a little more grateful, just at ease. And similarly, warm-hearted, you know, a sense of connection with other people. That sense of basic all rightness, sort of a coming in, that can help the mind calm down. It can lower stressful reactivity. And then there's kind of a choice, and you see this tracked in the research, I'll, I'll finish on this point, between a practice that is deliberately a focused attention practice contrasted to a practice that's more open awareness. These are Mm, terms that are used. mm -hmm. So focused attention is one in which you are seeking to become absorbed in a particular experience, such as the sensations of breathing at your upper lip or a feeling of just profound peacefulness whatever it might be, you're becoming absorbed in it. And so anything other than that, you're disengaging from instantly. That's essentially the practice. You are abandoning all those other things and while being devoted to the breath or to the feeling of compassion or whatever it is you're focused on. And in the process of that, kind of remarkably, some interesting things can happen inside your own mind that are not ordinary. 
consciousness, not ordinary states of consciousness, experiences of, of deep bliss, of unification. You feel completely whew, integrated potentially. And with deepening absorption, you can start moving into classically recognized across the world's traditions, non-ordinary states in the Buddhist tradition called jhanas, mm-hmm. known also in the Buddhist time. He didn't invent these. Mm-hmm. And these are well, you know, pretty well described. People like Steven Snyder teach them. And having experienced some of them myself, the, the four jhanas named in the right concentration element of the Eightfold Path, uh, you're not in Kansas any longer. Mm, mm-hmm. So yeah, absorption can bring you into that. And then as your mind gets incredibly quiet and your concentration is like a laser, it's deeply piercing, insight, vipassana, can be very liberating and non-conceptual and really freeing and, and transformational. A shift can happen as a result. So that's focused attention practices taken really quite far. Open awareness practices tend to be called mindfulness practices these days, mm-hmm. where you establish a certain just enough connection with your anchor of attention, the, the buoy, the, the sensations of breathing, say. And otherwise, you just get more and more open and you allow the stream of consciousness to roll on by. And you're not trying to focus on anything in particular. You're not being swept away. You're letting that flotsam and jetsam stream by without hopping on board any of it. But otherwise, you're just super open, super open, super open. That can progress into a sense of what's primarily present is simply awareness as the contents of consciousness get quieter and quieter and quieter, and you're more abiding as awareness. As that openness progresses, there can be a sense of not-self that begins to develop. There is awareness, but that awareness starts feeling almost transpersonal, more universal, more impersonal, uh, just presence. Uh, you're kind of opening, you're, you're moving into, I think of as the ground state where your mind is getting very quiet. The neural substrates of consciousness are getting very quiet. And you're just, there's like a humming. It's like the background noise, you know, the idling of the mind-brain process. So that's open awareness a lot and go into it by extension. Technically, you can take the sense of open awareness as an object of absorption, but it's a little hard to do that. I mean, there are different moves as you get more skillful and move in more the advanced advanced. So maybe I'm moving into beginning advanced. I don't know. Mm. But anyway, <laughs> as you progress, you know, there are moves you can make. But these are the kind of distinctions. So you know what you can do. Kind of typically, just maybe I'll finish on this, a simple progression for a lot of people. Start by relaxing, sort of settle in, get comfortable. Some people emphasize, you know, basically manipulating the body so you start feeling a lot of pain. I'm not a fan of that. If there's pain, there's pain, but pain's a signal that something's wrong. So, you know, typically it means move, stand up, stretch your legs. Uh, so get comfortable, relax, and then establish a, a basis of heartfeltness and kind of basic contentment. So on the basis of that kind of calming and relaxing in the body, you've sort of calmed your mind and established a basic sense of well-being. Positive emotion, it facilitates meditation. 
happiness is the proximal cause of concentration, as the Buddha said. Mm. So you kind mm-hmm. of find you're not forcing anything. It's okay if sadness, pain floats around the edges, but you're finding a basic well-being, second. Third, and maybe it's really second, in that well-being, finding some heartfeltness. And then I suggest strengthening the concentration muscle. And you may have done those first two things in less than a minute, if you're experienced. You're relaxing, you're dropping into a basic sense of well-being, and then steady your mind for a little bit. Build up a charge in the battery, as it were. Concentrate, disengage from anything else, really establish a stability of presence. Kaboom. A gravitas. Kaboom. Here you are. Kaboom. And then, if you like, move more into open awareness. Because by that point, you will have the stability to open into, soften into open awareness and not get so quickly hijacked by the stuff streaming along. That's a great, I think, overview and summary of a whole bunch of material related to meditation and how to begin developing the feeling for more of a meditative practice, even as a beginner in very soft, subtle ways. Even if it's just through taking a moment when you're sitting at your desk to walk through the three breaths that you walked people through earlier, whether it's while you're doing the dishes and being a little bit more mindful of the feeling of water running over your hands. Anytime that you are doing something, you can be doing something meditative as you're doing it. And I think that that's a really kind of helpful way to think about it. It doesn't just have to be when you're sitting on your cushion with your incense lit and all of the trappings of meditation surrounding you. You know, this is a practical practice that can be taken out into the real world. Yeah. And as you as you practice in any way, including meditation, have kindness for yourself, which includes really allowing whatever's beneficial to sink into you and to allow yourself to sink into it. It's really important. Mm, mm-hmm. And there can even be a certain exploration that goes on. That's okay. And then as you finish, as you come out of it, don't just abruptly change the channel into everyday life. Protect whatever you've cultivated. Stay with it. And even in the last minute or so when you know you're finishing up, sort of register whatever you've cultivated and developed in your practice so you know what it feels like. And so increasingly you can find your way back there again. Great. I think that's a great summary of a ton of material that we covered today. We could do three or four more episodes focused just on meditation and how to get into meditation. And if you're interested in more content like that, please let us know. You can send us an email at contact at beingwellpodcast.com. You can leave a rating and review for the podcast on the platform of your choice. I read almost all of those. Uh, You can contact us through Instagram. It's at beingwellpodcast. You can send us a message there. I read all of those. So if you want to give feedback on any aspect of the podcast, and particularly if you want to let us know topics that would be interesting for you to hear about in the future, that's the best way to do it. So today we talked about meditation. After remembering a couple of fun stories from my childhood, I started by asking Rick a bit of a trick question. What's the point of meditation? And this is kind of a trick because there are a lot of different points of meditation. Rick went through and listed seven or eight different really good reasons a person might have to meditate. At the most basic level, maybe they're trying to relax a little bit or just calm their mind down. Maybe they're searching for a little bit more self-understanding or self-comprehension. 
Or maybe they're even tying it to some kind of a spiritual or religious practice. These are all good reasons to meditate. In the ultimate sense, meditation is often aimed at two things. The first thing is deeper understanding of the nature of reality and the nature of our own mind, including truths of reality that are often a little destabilizing when you first run into them. Things like not-self, or the empty nature of phenomena, or the way in which all things will ultimately arise and then fall away. You could even include an increasing insight into the deterministic nature of processes that are occurring inside of our brain all the time, and the way in which we really have very little control over those discrete processes. And alongside that, the cultivation of tranquility and calmness, a kind of calm abiding that can underpin our behavior and our activity out in the world. And the Buddha spoke about this combination of serenity and insight, of a tranquil, steady, unified, concentrated mind, combined with a kind of penetrating view into the true nature of things. But while that might be the ultimate goal of certain kinds of meditation, that doesn't mean that all meditation needs to be aimed at that goal. That's really a very narrow view of what meditation is. And from there, we transitioned into a conversation that I found really personally illuminating, where Rick mentioned that there was kind of a progression most of the time in traditional structures around meditation, and that that progression began with virtue, and it ended, perhaps, with this sort of deep meta-observation of the nature of reality, including its formlessness and emptiness. But you began with virtue. You began with good activity out in the world. And to just kind of reflect and opine for a second, I think that this is one place where some extremely secular, very neuroscience-driven, and so on, interpretations of mindfulness and meditation have kind of gone awry a little bit, where meditation is held up as this way to see into the true nature of reality, or the formlessness of the ego, or the way in which we don't need to have a developed self-identity because identity itself is just a construct. And there are ways in which these arguments might be true and they might have some merit to them. But practically speaking, many of the people who are sharing these beliefs have skipped right past the virtue part. And they've gotten so wrapped up in the kind of esoteric elements of these practices that they might have lost touch with some of the foundations of them where these people remain very attached to their view, even as they talk about not-self. And that irony is something that I've really been thinking about recently, including in my own life, how, coming from a very agnostic perspective, I tend to orient more toward the cool, introspective parts of meditation as opposed to the more virtue-driven aspects of meditation. And that's something that I'm going to think about more in the future. All that said, it's entirely possible to do meditation in a completely secular context, and there's no reason that meditation has to be spiritual or religious. But historically, meditation comes from a context and out of a culture that was heavily influenced by spiritual and religious connotations, and it's often attached to cosmologies, to views of reality, that are not entirely grounded in a material frame, and it's really okay to acknowledge that as well. Just as secular meditation is fine, the fact that meditation was also practiced mostly not secularly for thousands of years is also fine. I then went on to ask Rick why he meditates, and kind of associated with that, what he's gotten out of meditation. And he had this great line that I want to reiterate here, 
So much of meditative practice isn't about acquiring, it's about shedding. What are you giving up to achieve a higher happiness? And I think that that just encapsulated so much of what we talked about today. Then we closed with a conversation focused on the forms that meditation can take. We started by talking about the physical forms. Do you have to be sitting on a cushion with a cup of tea and incense and a little happy Buddha statue around you in order to meditate effectively? And of course, you don't. You can meditate a lot of different ways. You can stand and meditate, sit and meditate. You can walk. You can lie down as long as you don't fall asleep. And you can certainly do something. One of the times where I really meditate, and I used it as an example here, is when I'm doing the dishes. And related to that, we can have meditative interactions with other people. You can have a mindful conversation with somebody else. Then Rick closed with a kind of way into meditation for people. He talked about some of the major aspects of meditation and some of the things that you might focus on or think about while you're meditating. If you'd like to learn more about this, we'd be happy to do another episode focused on the details of kind of walking somebody through a meditation. But there is so much material out there that's focused on that that we kind of went in a little bit of a different direction for this episode. But if that's interesting to you, please let us know. You can reach out at contact at beingwellpodcast.com. You can leave a rating and a review, letting us know what kind of episodes you'd like to hear in the future. You can talk to us through Instagram at beingwellpodcast. And I'm sure there are some other ways to get in touch that I'm not even thinking of right now. All that said, that's it for today's episode. If you've really been enjoying the podcast, we would appreciate it if you would subscribe to it through the platform of your choice. And as I was saying a second ago, maybe even leave it a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out. I'd like to close by saying that it's really just such a pleasure to be able to do this for everyone. And thanks so much for listening. I hope you have a great week and we'll talk to you soon.